This podcast episode is brought to you by Iron Source. They know you're here for good content, so they're not going to waste your time with a long pitch. Here are the three things you need to remember and know about Iron Source. Number one, they're developing the most robust data-driven growth engine for mobile games. Number two, their secret sauce is closing the monetization marketing loop to help developers supercharge growth. And number three, they have an awesome Medium blog and podcast called Level Up. You can find it on Medium by searching for Iron Source Level Up. Thanks. This podcast episode is also brought to you by AppsFlyer. Most of you are probably already familiar with AppsFlyer. It's perhaps one of the best attribution platforms on mobile, a true foundation for your marketing tech stack, giving you all the tools to drive marketing success. AppsFlyer allows comprehensive measurement and analytics that helps you to optimize the end-to-end player journey from acquisition to retention, from ROI to LTV. In practice, this means filtering cohorts of installs and then retargeting those cohorts with personalized experience based on engagement and in-app events. AppsFlyer also offers super robust fraud protection, making sure you're not paying for bogus traffic. Playrex, Tencent, Playtika, Square Enix, and Huge are among the many games companies that all use AppsFlyer to boost their business. Go to appsflyer.com and get yourself attribution data you can trust. Thanks. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Twig81. Today, we've got a full house. Myself, Joe Kim, Mishka Kavkoff, Eric Kress, and Adam Telfer. And today, we are covering four articles. The first, Cloud Gaming, Why It Matters, and the Games It Will Create by Matthew Ball in his Matthew Ball blog. Second, Fortnite's Party Royale, Mode Ditches the Guns, Ask Players to Chill by Ars Technica. Third, 10 Years of Excellence, Deconstruction of Supercell from our very own Deconstructor of Fun blog. Fourth, Design and Behavioral Economics equals Apple from the Lloyd Melnick blog. And are we, Eric, are we still, uh, and that's it, that's it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so how are you guys doing pretty good. I, apolo- pretty good I apologize in advance i forgot my microphone at the um at the studio so i'm recording this from home and it might sound like shit but the content is great so it looks like you're in a closet so it's gonna be great Dude, I- better 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 closet than outdoors with all the gosh darn birds the last time the birds were too much too much last time <laughs> <laughs> I was about to go outside. People, some people like the birds. I do have to say, I got some some positive comments about the birds as well. They're calming. <laughs> and jumping straight into updates, I wanted to first start with a congratulations to Bill Wang, who just started a new games publisher called Skystone Games. And apparently, Bill co-founded the new studio with David Brevik, who will be president and a potential executive producer on published games and. If that name sounds familiar, because that is the David Brevik, as in the creator of Diablo and founder of Condor, a.k.a. Blizzard North. So anyone who's read the video game book, Stay a While and Listen, should be familiar with that name. And definitely a very interesting new development for games publishing. And an interesting new take on being a games publisher. So good luck to Bill. And Bill, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit you up. So let's, let's do some content together, find out what you're doing. And... Hopefully we can uh, see what's going on there. I also have one other personal update in terms of uh, some content. So I actually, for the GG Digest newsletter, which I also 
publish. I did a piece on the death of performance marketing and wow, they got a lot of responses. So if you haven't checked it out, please do check it out. You can go to ggdigest.com. But uh, the power of clickbaiting. The power <laughs> exactly, of exactly, yeah. I've been telling you for a long time. I'm just trying to learn. Man. <laughs> yeah. I've seen your latest titles are like, man, I, I, I'm like, I, I want to listen to this. What is this about? It's not anymore like, hey, Roblox, how does Roblox approach this? Like, I don't care. Give me something crazy. This was excellent. The death of performance marketing. Come on, man. Who How Roblox is that? murdering a generation of kids. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, now I'm clicking on that. <laughs> Adam, you got some updates? Uh, yeah, so uh, one big acquisition this week. So Scopely has acquired Scrabble Go developer PurePlay. Just taking a look at the metrics for Scrabble Go, just to give you some context of you know why they acquired them. Um, Scrabble Go is actually at a really uh, strong launch. 14 million downloads. Uh, which is definitely very good, especially for a word game. Um, I think it's only second to Words with Friends launch. Um, tracking overall to about a 30 cent RPI in the US. Um, and Words with Friends in comparison actually never cracked 15 cents in the first two years. Weirdly, it's tracking lower in RPI than Wordscapes, which is a hyper casual word game, uh, which blew up, I think, a couple of years ago. Um, no clue how actually like the ad revenue actually impacts this, um, but I would probably believe that Scrabble Go is driving less revenue per download from ads than Wordscapes. Um, so from an RPI basis, it's looking good, but uh, Wordscapes, I think, is beating it there. Um, as reported in previous podcasts, this is kind of core to Scopely's strategy. That is, find a dev, work closely with them, and then acquire them if the game is a hit. So this happened with Digit in Dublin for Star Trek Timelines or Star Trek, what was it? Star Trek, the 4X game, um, which did recently Fleet well. Command. Uh, Fleet Command and signals that Scopely sees a long-term success with Scrabble and want to lock down the developer. Yeah, I mean, the, the only comment I have here is Zynga just absolutely destroyed this launch window. I mean, they just made an absolute huge investment in UA. They went from like 7 million installs over the last, they did 7 million installs over the last two months versus 1.8 for the prior two months with their competitive game, uh, Words with Friends. Um, but still, Scopely Game had a really good launch. Uh, the team has done a great job. with. I've actually played that game. It was pretty amazing. And but this thing has been in beta since January of 2018. I mean, this thing's been around forever, but they clearly have designed around Words with Friends. And what I've heard is they've offered some features that Words with Friends has not been able to implement. Um, and the RPI looks obviously a lot stronger. But I think this could be somewhat of a disappointment on the download side because of the ultimate goal. Now, I could be wrong on this, but I'd probably imagine the ultimate goal is to build up as big an audience as possible for advertising. So uh, Zynga may have, have thwarted their, you know, you know, rise and downloads, but, but overall it looks like a, a good solid hit for them. And, and, and you're right, it does kind of further their strategy of acquiring the means of production, which is, I thought their biggest weakness uh, when we spoke about it a while back. Um, and uh, I'm talking to Henry this week uh, and uh, who left Scopely recently. So kind of looking forward to catching up on what's going on with him and what's going on with, uh, scopely so anyway uh moving on so so uh piece of news uh this is actually for for uh it's an article called what does an effective cmo look like so this is from our good friend eric suford um and he basically broke down an article by bain 
which was called why average CMO tenures are significantly shorter than those of other key executive roles. So in that Bain article, they talked about three different archetypes of um, of a CMO, sort of a creative iconoclast, a professional GM, and a digital wizard. And in that article, they made... Um, they basically talk from a perspective of a CEO and how CEO should interact with these different type of CMOs and what are their strengths and weaknesses. And instead of a breaking down in just three archetypes, they kind of made a combo. So usually you have a CMO that is uh, creative and sort of a professional GM or a professional GM slash digital wizard and, and sort of a, like a, you know, kind of like an RPG type of combo. So um, I actually sent this article to Eric and, and I asked him to write this. So Eric, Thank you very much for writing this article. And and he broke down and I'm kind of like, you should definitely check it out at Mobile Dev Memo. But in his conclusion, this is the, like his conclusion is this. So it's probably broadly, this conclusion, meaning the three different archetypes is probably correct, but it ne- neglects the acknowledge of something. None of these three archetype marketers can be effective without measurement in place. No matter the delivery mechanism, be it Facebook ad or a billboard, the process of marketing a product comprises four steps. One, targeting a potential customer. Two, delivering a message to them. Three, observing whether or not they take an action. And four, absorbing that new information into a model. So the relative emphasis that the CMO is disposed to place on creative or organizational management or data infrastructure is irrelevant until they have a clear sense of how any marketing spend develops into revenue. So I think Eric's takes take was really good and very interesting because he kind of looked at from not a consumer company or any other kind of like a general company, but more from a gaming company and how CMOs should be... Um, you know, scene in in uh, in gaming companies. So definitely suggest you read it. Uh, really good one. And what is a digital wizard? Digital wizard is that like data analyst? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's more like data. It's more they were talking about data native type of things. Like this was a Bain companies. Uh, they they have like five hundred yeah. companies that they consult. So for them, digital na- digital wizard was basically probably somebody who has installed TikTok or Snapchat. And what? <laughs> <laughs> not, not really, but 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 it was uh, it was more on 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 a person who's uh, basically they they pitted that person against the one who's more brand focused. So a person, um, a CMO that is more focused on the performance marketing side rather than uh, the growth of brand or something that is uh, maybe a little bit of a harder to measure. So the weakness of that type of person is that they neglect maybe uh, typical brand activities because it's uh, harder to measure and, and not as cost efficient. And jumping into news, cloud gaming, why it matters and the games that will create. So for those of you who don't know Matthew Ball, he's a former media and Amazon games guy and now a venture capitalist who writes very in-depth thought pieces on video games. His content is unique in its depth, which I definitely appreciate, but at the same time, Damn, guys, did you read this article? Holy shit, it was freaking long. So anyway, I mean, did you is guys it, actually read the whole thing or did you, did you skim it? But anyway. I, I, no, I, I had to skim it. I, I, can't, I can't go over these issues again and again and again. Like, kill myself. <laughs> but I, I do really appreciate the content and the depth and the thoughtfulness that he has put into it. And I'll leave a link in the show notes if you want to dive into the ocean on this. But just for our audience, I'm going to highlight some of the takeaways, which are arranged around three key areas of insight. First is around business model. 
So here, the author, Matthew Ball, suggests that because of the popularity of cloud content streaming services like Spotify and Netflix, that there's a danger of conflating a similar business model around all you can eat with cloud gaming. Further, those services combine both the content and the streaming content delivery under a single bundle. But today for gaming, we actually have a mix of services and models today like Google Stadia Pro and GeForce Now, which requires you to buy the individual game. Xbox Game Pass, which is similarly kind of an all-you-can-eat model, including the content. And Sony's PS Now, which is cloud game streaming and includes an all-you-can-eat game catalog, but also allows you to download locally to play. So Ball posits that what will eventually win is a simplified package over time where a customer relationship is with a single party rather than multiple parties. Finally, the author points out a couple of key differentiators of video games relative to other content types, which we've talked about a lot on this podcast, so we agree, which first, many of the biggest games today are free to play, hence this doesn't fit in well with an all-you-can-eat bundle. And secondly, game playing time is enormously concentrated the notion that game consumption patterns trend, tends to concentrate in a few or single game that consumes most of your of the player's time versus video music where it's heavily diversified, right? The kind of idea that you, know, you don't want to listen to the same song or watch the same video over and over again, but in games, you kind of do. The second key area of takeaways, which I found the most useful, was around costs and technical challenges. And he wrote that most estimates suggest that data center and GB GPU costs around 35 cents to 40 cents per user hour. Hence, the marginal server cost of 20 hours of gameplay is over $7. Jesus. Yeah, it kind of makes you wonder how economically viable it is. Then Ball goes into a fairly deep discussion on the challenges of optimizing for utilization and the fact that player play patterns can be very bursty and not very predictable but the player expectation is to play whenever they want to. So there's, uh, again, you can dive into the ocean on that in terms of the challenges. In addition to utilization is uh, network latency and the last mile and delivery issues, which are also, which also have fairly challenging technical issues. And on top of all of that, there are massive bandwidth costs. So Ball notes that a 60 frames per second video game stream is many times larger than a Netflix 24 frames per second video file. And again, I'll say the details, but in his words, the costs here are believed to be up to twice as great as that of compute and rendering. So we're now talking in terms of costs, $1.05 to $1.20 per user hour for both compute and bandwidth. So definitely from a cost perspective, Ball is suggesting this is extremely expensive. And finally, the third area of key takeaways is around the customer value proposition. So in this last area, Ball talks about the kinds of customers who would want the service and the kinds of games that would create a stronger customer value prop. Now, he doesn't doubt some players will be happy to pay an extra $10 to $20 per month, but he doesn't see the total lift to the traditional game market as very substantial. And one key point Ball makes around this is that for hundreds of millions of players, the hardware cost is already zero. Further, even with cloud solutions like Stadia, you're going to have to buy some additional hardware, right? Whether it's the $60 Chromecast Ultra or $60 for a controller per player. And finally, Ball speculates that 
for cloud gaming, really the kind of game that's going to succeed is something that requires the cloud, not just can be delivered via the cloud. And so he posits that this is going to be something that he calls a mile, M-I-L-E, or massive interactive live event. And three examples he gives of this is first, in 2014, a gamer set up a locally processed copy of Pokemon Red and shared on Twitch. It was kind of a social experiment that was referred to as Twitch Plays Pokemon. And so the streamer set it up so that all the game decisions were chosen by the video stream's viewers. And the game was completed after 16 games, but had a lot of viewers, peak of 120K concurrence and more than 1.2 million players. The second example he cites in 2017, Reddit released a 1000 by 1000 pixel digital camera and allowed Redditors to color in every single pixel every five to 20 minutes. And in this case, 1 million users participated with 16 million pixels colored in with an average of 90K active contributors. And finally, there was a mod of Grand Theft Auto San Andreas run by Twitch Speedrunner that allowed viewers to spend money to apply cheat codes that would either hurt the streamer or aid the streamer during gameplay. So Ball thinks that these are examples of the next kind of game that will be successful for cloud gaming and the other stuff is just kind of nice to have but not really necessary. And sorry, that was long-winded, wow. but that's... that's, that was, that's I mean, that was quite an article. Like, I have to admit, like, I, I wrote a similar piece that was like one page, like two years ago, <laughs> but basically kind of making the same points. But, you know, the one thing that was really remarkable is him going after like the actual cost per hour, which is something I've said a million of times, but haven't done the work to figure out exactly yeah, he, what he that was. I know, because anecdotally, I've heard from numerous people in an industry that, yeah, the, the uh, per unit economics just don't work. Like, they lose money, you know? Yeah. And then imagine the most popular game like Fortnite, where they just basically, and no one spends, they lose, just lose money, right? So anyway, that won't work. But the one quote that I want to pull out of this thing is a Tim Sweeney quote. Right. Because I'm not agreeing with Sweeney much on these days. And, and of course, he's somewhat biased because he is, a, a, you know, an ownership of distribution on PC. But his quote really sums up the, uh, the technology debt type issue is that initiatives to place real-time processing on the wrong side of latency will always be doomed to failure because even though bandwidth and latency are improving, local computing performance is moving faster, right? And that's exactly the fundamental problem, right? Is that it is always, always going to be better to play this with dedicated GPU, CPU, and a hard drive install because that's the way these games are played. And, and that's never going to change. And so like all this hardware investment that they're making on the cloud will have to be upgraded in four or five years because all the other hardware in the planet is gonna be upgraded along at the same time. So anyway, I, I, I applaud him for making this deep, deep dive, but uh, these are kind of the same points we've been making over and over and over again for the last since we started this stupid podcast. So let's move on to the next one, which is basically a similar story where we're talking about user-generated content and you know the metaverse stuff again. So there was an article about uh, Fortnite Party Royale, a mode, a mode that ditches guns and asks players to chill, right? So basically data miners extracted you know, some images for a new map and it basically focuses on building versus, versus shooting. Um, and we've kind of been talking about this for a while, and this is kind of on, on the, on the uh, after this huge event uh, where Travis Scott concert got about 27.7 million people 
playing this game. And this is part, kind of part of the article in which they're talking about building a, big, a much bigger presence for Fortnite above just shooting, right? And so we have been talking about them creating a more creative-based economy, and that's kind of part of their longer-term goals with Fortnite. And you know, to be more similar to like Minecraft and Roblox, to create like a, a social hub that user-generated content can be you know, used to build new experiences within the universe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this is a really cool development if they can pull it off. I'm not really too sure how the fans will respond, but you know, it definitely could future-proof their game and make, you know, introduce new, new experiences by engaging a small segment of the user base with content creation. Um, I think those tools need to be quite robust um, and they also need to build some kind of uh, interaction between the buyers and sellers of content and or, you know, microtransactions, et cetera, et cetera. But um, fundamentally, like this could be their, you know, big next step in continuing to build, you know, uh, Fortnite as quote unquote a metaverse as, you know, their revenue continues to decline uh, from a user base. Although I'm sure they're getting a shot in the arm right now during this COVID stuff. But Oh, I said the word. Damn it. So anyway, yeah, very cool. What do you think, JK? I think that uh, this is definitely interesting. And we're, we're definitely seeing a lot of media comments on Fortnite becoming the next metaverse, whatever that means. But to some degree, I feel like the recent success of Epic's House Party also weighed in on this type of feature for them. So no doubt people like to hang out and socialize, especially in these times of shelter in place. No doubt people like to play Fortnite. And so... I think the big question mark is whether these things go well together. And there's this saying that I keep forgetting. People like milkshakes, people like fried eggs, but do people like eating them together? I, I don't know. I screwed up the, the saying, but it's something like that. So, so definitely both good ideas, both have traction. And for me, it's just, do they belong in the same product or not? So we'll, we'll, we'll see. Adam? You're thinking like, does building in a creative mode fit within the Fortnite? Ideal? Or what, what do you mean? Yeah, or building more of these social hangout, chill features that isn't really about the, the major gameplay. Now, it's certainly, I think that some of these events, yeah. so Travis Scott concert and Marshmallow or whatever, are interesting, but that fits a proven model of having different kinds of events, but is not like, you know, if you had events, if you had concerts all the time in Fortnite, would that make sense? I don't know. You know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, but but I think it still proves that there is an outspoken audience within it that are open to these types of experiences, right? And I think yeah. Fortnite's one of the few games that could actually build this mode and actually drive significant engagement. Because I think even within Fortnite, there's a ton of different types of players. There's still like these competitive shooter players within Fortnite. They're probably not going to want to do this stuff, but there's a huge, huge critical mass of players that just do this for the cosmetics, right? And just do this to hang out with friends. And if there's better modes for that, that's, that's great. Because I think, yeah, just kind of reiterating what Eric said, Fortnite is declining. In order for them to kind of stabilize their player base and kind of retain a lot of those players that are leaving, I think they do need to lean into that player segment, which is all about party royale, that is all about going to these events, dancing, communicating with friends. And I think uh, a focus on UGC um, is likely a way to actually retain this audience. So I agree with it, with Eric. And I think it is actually a pretty good gel for their audience. Yeah, I, the last point I'll make on this on an anecdotal basis is that I, I look at how my kid interacts with this game and, and there is some of it where he's looking at the, he's building content with his friends and they're kind of socializing in that way, but it's all around you know shooting each other. But 
I think this is like one of those instances in which you build it and they will come type thing. And if you, if they do build the right tools and tech and for the small group of people to make amazing experiences, I think people will be drawn back in, but, uh, but it's certainly not without its risk. Right. And I've said that before is I think Minecraft and particularly Roblox is a much better platform for that, at least at their age demographic. But, uh, it's, it's certainly super compelling. I mean, what was the new company that just came out? I, uh, Manticore? Like, yeah, Man- Manticore. So, you know, Manticore is trying to basically create that on its own, right? And and they have a tool that looks freaking exactly <laughs> like uh, Fortnite. It's crazy, dude. I mean, the graphics look, I mean, the, the visual style almost looks exactly like that uh, in, in, in some of the executions that I saw. And so these guys have a huge leg up in terms of they have an audience that is, is engaged. So, you know, we'll see. And they're also, oh, they it's epic, right? Like they've built a game engine. They, they know how to build this stuff, right? Yeah, uh, but how much belongs together, right? So you guys are really kind of buying into the metaverse. You go one place and do everything. Oh, I didn't say I'm metaverse. Sure. <laughs> I said I metaverse, say goddammit. I said, I said UGC platform. Yeah. <laughs> is, there any kind of a, is there any kind of an incentive to build it? Like, like usually, well, if we think about Roblox or episodes, I believe, or choices, which one, one of them, yeah. like when you create content... Yet. Yeah, there's there's that revenue share, which is a nice kind of like an incentive to some. No, no, that's that, that, that's what I've been trying to say. And I don't think I'm eloquently saying it. It's like, yes, you need a buyer and a seller, right? You need the you need the creators to be able to be paid, right? And there's no mechanism for that to happen, as far as I can tell right now. That yeah. like, but like there is in Roblox and Minecraft to some degree. So uh, that's what they need to build out, and that's like the competitive advantage of Roblox. So yeah, you're right. That's going to be the biggest challenge is building that ecosystem. But I just don't feel like that is the biggest challenge. I think no. Like I think they have so many players in Fortnite, right? Like Manticore is coming. They're just trying to reach that critical mass. Fortnite still has, you know, millions of players playing it, right? Like all the content creators are going to want to build on Fortnite because even if it's say a worse revenue share, right? They still get way more players. They're still going to be making more money. So I, I don't really see that as the challenge. I think. Are you, are you saying, Adam, that Manticore is putting the horse in front of the carriage? No, I think Manticore is in, is in a tough spot going up against Fortnite, right? Um, just because I think it's easier for Fortnite to add monetization to their creative tools than it is for Manticore to create a Fortnite-sized audience. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. Well, huh. you, could, you could have said that YouTube had a much larger audience than Twitch, and Twitch would never have had a chance just because they have the audience, right? But it's, it's a different... <laughs> it's a different application. And again, you know, do all these things belong in the same app? I don't know. I, I would kind of, I, I haven't bought into the metaverse. <laughs> Man, this is nothing to do with the metaverse. But it is, <laughs> <laughs> like, even, like even Minecraft added this stuff later down the road, right? Uh, Roblox built it, I think, like, I, I don't know what Roblox was like in 2006, but like they added a lot of features over time, right? And with Minecraft, it was initially a survival game. Right, and then they added the creative aspects afterwards. So, okay, on that note, <laughs> let's move on. Let's oh, move now, on. We're, now we're going to talk about Supercell. God damn let's it! Let's talk about ten years of excellence, the deconstruction of Supercell, and how they will build the metaverse. Right, um, <laughs> with their three hundred people, uh, three twenty. It's kind of weird doing the the summary here when the author is right here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, That's mystery author, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, right, right. The mystery author. It's not me, yep. by the way. 
Yeah, yeah we we had two authors. Uh, the other one have to remain a mystery. But, uh, I'll explain it in my in my summary. Yeah. Okay. Um, yep. So it was posted last week, and it deconstructed Supercell for the past ten years. Uh, thinking through their last decade, um, they've made about twelve billion dollars in revenue over the last six years, which is absolutely jaw dropping. Uh, four of those, or four games released, has passed one billion in lifetime revenue, which of course is is incredible. They're currently only at about a three hundred twenty employees total. Um, and I think like back in 2016, they were still like even less than 200. So for the majority of that time, I think it was less than 200. Um, and just looking at the timeline of Supercell, it's like it's pretty defined by Clash of Clans. If you just generalize the whole thing, it's generated 6.5 billion in revenue, actually 8.2 billion, you said? In terms of lifetime, yeah, I, I believe it was eight point. I believe I believe it was eight point two. They they had it publicly in a in a Finnish newspaper. It was eight something billions, if I'm correct. I would have to check it out, but yeah, yeah two thirds of the revenues. Um, and if you look at the graph in terms of like stacking revenue as they added different games, um, Clash of Clans really declined from 2015 to 2019, and that's not to knock it. It was still doing incredibly well, uh, but it was far from its peak in 2014. Um, but since the introduction of the Battle Pass and uh, really kind of late stage growth, this is on the back of releasing late game content and extending their overall economy as covered by Aino, I'm going to say the name wrong anyways, uh, in his video previously, um, you can really see the resurgence of Clash of Clans since 2014. Heyday, Boom Beach, these were all kind of pretty solid revenue, um, but they never really leaned into the live content like say Playrix did with Township. And Boom Beach peaked in 2016 when it was kind of, uh, sorry, Boom Beach peaked initially in say 2015, but it just hasn't been the same since. It's basically just a PVE version of Clash of Clans that just couldn't sustain. Clash Royale, which of course is an incredible game, started very strong, um, but tailed off over time, likely due to its economy system just limiting its overall depth with just too few progression tracks. And Brawl Stars, uh, which has been built by has definitely stacked on top of the business overall, which is nice to see. It's just not nearly at the same scale. So it's pretty limited by, again, its shallow economy and slow live content, but having a pretty outsized success due to launches in Asia. Um, so looking at Supercell moving forward, I agree with the major points. Like overall, like Supercell's main advantage is their talent and autonomy culture. Um, getting the best people and just getting out of their way um, because I just think that's much better for retaining the best talent. Well, obviously, they're going to have ups and downs with getting the right people into the right teams, and I think they've talked about this quite a bit, especially at GDC. Um, they are the best in the industry at cultivating game design and development talent. Um, art, I would say they actually have really, really strong talent, but I just think that they limit themselves to certain art styles. Um, and on product, I don't even think they hire for that. Um, so really, it's it's all about getting the best game design and the best developers, which you can really see in the games, allows them to have a lot more creative confidence and also allows them to to build these massive scale games, be the first in the world to be building synchronous PvP experiences on mobile. Uh, they also keep small teams that, of course, have incredibly high impact with lots of feedback around the company. And I would say this is definitely not for the faint of heart, which probably leads to a lot of that turnover 
um, especially from people that kind of come in as kind of corporate goombas trying to make everybody happy. Um, they, they hire, they have to hire very confident and competent people that actually can understand how to take feedback and focus on making the game better. And that's, that's a, that's a unicorn. Um, but overall, Supercell grew up during the tailwind of the mobile market. What got them here won't get them there in the future. Um, the reality of the current market is the importance of sustainable engagement, deep economies, and live content. And I think Supercell's always done extremely well with PvP-focused games. So Clash of Clans, Royale, Brawl Stars. These all typically require very high design skills, which is you know a competitive advantage for them, to pull off and actually sustain a meta um, which actually has a very high level of engagement as, as a baseline. Um, but what's nice about it is that you don't have to have a tremendous amount of live content because the game is so hyper-engaging at its core. Whenever Supercell starts venturing into PvE-style games, they tend to get burned just because the content requirements are too high. And I think Heyday Pop is the recent one, but also even looking at Boom Beach, right? Like, they, they managed to build out that content incredibly smartly. But... At the, at the end of the day, they're just not a big enough company to develop the content that's needed. And the same thing with Heyday. And I think overall, too, just being a first mover in a winner-takes-all market is very, very important. So leveraging their small teams and creative confidence to grab brand new games is the competitive advantage, and they need to focus on that. Because what they need to avoid, of course, is content treadmills that suck up their key resources. Um, going after existing markets that have existing large developers. So don't, you know, go directly after King in a UA fight. And also just letting their, 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 their small teams, you know, figure out how to do live cadence properly. And I think um, they can try to aim for as much of the first mover advantage, but they can actually lose that if they, a competitor comes in and starts executing faster and better on live content with the key example there being Township. So if they find ways to actually outsource or expand their content delivery, and I think you talked a little bit about M&A in this, in this space, um, maybe from the situation of new games, but also potentially for expanding live content, they need to do this. Because I think if, if they, say, launched a new Clash Royale, something that actually shaped the market um, in the next like few months, uh, you could see another developer pretty much taking on that game, copying it, and now actually eating into that market share if they could actually develop live content faster. So I think overall Supercell is in an amazing position to move forward and expand their business. Um, this is not a knock on them. They just need to lean more into their competitive advantages, utilize their small creative teams going after new PVP market segments and not getting caught into content treadmills or going directly against other developers in UA fights. That's my take, Joe. Cool. Yeah. So I think that last point is an important one because, you know, the question from that would be, do they then miss out on big opportunities where in that, that I know video, he also mentioned wanting to keep their team small. And so if you are just PVP focused games without content treadmill, then do you miss some big opportunities or not? I, I think that is uh, the key implication I took from your last point. I and would just say like that, like you will miss opportunities, but there is opportunities on the other side. Sorry, sure. sorry to interrupt, but like I, I completely agree. But at the same time, like Supercell can't go after every market, right? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pick and choose your battles and ones that you feel like you can win. 
Yeah, but certainly some of those bigger markets are ones that do require content treadmills. Not not to say that they are not already going after some big ones, but but certainly some some big opportunities. I think cutting to the chase, the big question for me around this article is whether or not Supercell has lost its mojo or not. So is this a matter of us just being patient and waiting for their next big hit? Or will Supercell continue to slowly decline over time? Just to be fair, I think that they do have a few of these, what Zynga calls forever franchises. What we're noticing in the games industry is that some of these games last forever. So Clash of Clans, Clash Royale will not be going to zero in the next 5, 10, or even 20 years, or maybe even forever. But definitely the last four to five years have made a lot of fans and industry so-called experts kind of nervous. And so, yeah, I think that that's a big question. I, in, in a very early uh, Twig podcast, I, I mentioned some Supercell rumors that I, I think those guys got upset at me about. <laughs> I, <see Mishka. laughs> All right, I, won't, I won't mention the rumors, but the question is, there's some questions in the Helsinki inner circle about whether Supercell can continue to be successful or not. But just to be clear, Supercell, for me, these guys are the good guys. So if I root for anybody, if, if you know, I were to stack rank who are the top 10 game studios that I would root for, Supercell's number one. So definitely good luck to those guys. And um, I'm definitely going to be waiting for the next Supercell game myself, and I'll play the shit out of whatever they, they launch. Mishka. All right, fanboy. Um, so, so I'm just gonna I'm, I'm gonna go into a little bit of. I like I like how you go to the rumors thing. Like, yeah, I, by the way, I really like Supercell. <laughs> a little bit of a shit sandwich. You always deliver on that one. Um, anyways, um, and there's nothing wrong with JK's rumors. They're actually half of the time correct. <laughs> so. Uh, I'm just going to give a little bit of a background about the post. So we started off originally this as a part of a prediction. It was just a couple of paragraphs. Then it kind of grew in its own piece to be released sometimes in January, February. And then uh, I got the uh, the unnamed partner who was actually working as director of product in one of the companies we discussed in the beginning of this podcast. <laughs> and it's not a secret. Um, both people outside Supercell, inside Supercell have been introdu- introduced to this person. So he's, he's a big fan of Supercell. Anyway, we got together and then um, we kind of finished up this post, some 30 pages, then cut it off to 10 pages. Then we're about to release and then we're waiting for his employer to allow him to release it so that his name is on the blog and they didn't give it. And then we actually started waiting for Supercell turn 10 years because we thought about like, why not? <laughs> let's just, let's just wait a little bit. And then it came out. Uh, overall, I have to thank everybody on this podcast and, and outside who, who read it. Uh, I think it was the fastest um, to reach 10,000 unique readers. I think it happened like inside 24 hours. It was pretty crazy. And uh, a lot of great feedback, a lot of great conversation based on that uh, with people outside and inside Supercell and their portfolio companies who shall also be <laughs> remain unnamed. But overall, like two pieces were most controversial from, from this article or the, not controversial, but the ones that, that um, ignited the most discussion. Uh, first one was Supercell's performance marketing. So we kind of discussed that Supercell's approach is more of carpet bombing versus tactical operation. It really well fits their games, but not as much their game portfolio. So we're talking about redemption games, Frogmind, uh, not really uh, you know, relying on app loving and super scale to scale up their games and grow their games. Uh, 
Uh, we talked about Heyday, which hasn't received any performance marketing help despite making $100 million in yearly revenues. And we discussed the fact that they're, they're, most of their marketing team is located on the other side of the world, far, far away from the studios. And as we know from, uh, from Eric Sorford's uh, articles, that, that kind of approach is a somewhat approach of the past. So that was the first piece that, that brought in a lot of discussion. And since then, I don't know if there's any correlation between this, but I'm seeing a lot of Clash Royale ads in Instagram. <laughs> like they literally started, maybe it's just because of this bias and people have been actually sending me screenshots of, of ads for, for Clash Royale and Clash of Clans, but um, just a coincidence. Uh, the second part was M&A strategy, which, which Adam referred to. So that was another part that was uh, most discussed. So overall, when we think about the M&A motivations, we can kind of divide it into one. So one is searching for synergies, whether it's user synergies in, sort of in, in, in terms of audience arbitrage, publishing, go-to-market, or whether, whether it is development or operational expertise, such so as you know, genre or technical expertise. Uh, and then the, the second motivation is buying scale. So the sort of a Zynga approach where you're basically acquiring revenue or, or you're acquiring EBIT. Uh, what Supercell has been doing is somewhat uh, puzzling. They have been sort of betting their M&A on future bets, uh, not that much even on diverse diversification or insights uh they've um well there, there's some diverse diversification but still they've invested some hundred million inside last four years and quite honestly like this is not a knock on any of the companies that they're acquired in any way but in the scale of supercell they have a little bit little to show for that hundred million that they've invested what i mean by that is that the bets have been very small they haven't been acquiring the ones that in my opinion, they should have, like they should have acquired Small Giant. Um, that would be, I mean, it would be a huge loss for Zynga right now, but but, but those type of companies would, would definitely be putting Supercell on a, on a massive growth path. Uh, they didn't acquire Graham. They didn't acquire, you know, I don't know if Peak and Playrix were, were up for sale, but those kind of companies that truly have an impact and impact both in terms of revenue, in terms of audience, but also in terms of, in terms of actually bringing something different, different ways of thinking, different ways of operating to Supercell. If we even consider Peak Games, they are actually like the puzzle company, uh, of like a puzzle Supercell. They work in small teams. They work super hard. They're innovative, of course, a little bit more incremental innovation, but but and, and nevertheless, very, very small team focused, very hardworking. Anyway, so those were the kind of um, big pieces. And then regarding what, what Adam was, and when you guys were talking about the teams, um, one thing that that um, kind of came out in the discussion is the teams are their strength, and, and there's nothing against that. Um, but there's a notion of of you know Supercell always, in a way, comparing themselves. Not I don't know how they, how much they do this publicly, but they always compare themselves to uh, to um, you know like a football team, uh, whether we're talking about soccer or or uh, American football. But they basically a team of superstars. And, and in that type of environment, of course, you're acquiring the best type of players and you're seeing if they fit your, your strategy and how they fit into the team. And even you might be a great player in, in a different organization, you might not be a great player in this organization, hence the high level of turnover because you're not learning to play according to their playbook. If that's their sort of a high-level approach, they're a, they're a super team. They're Real Madrid. They're the, uh, the Buccaneers of, 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 uh, of the world. <laughs> I don't know if the, it was Buccaneers now the big thing since they made the acquisition. Uh, and anyways, the acquisition um, of Tom Brady, yeah. <laughs> and, 
and Gronk. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even, I don't follow that. You don't know the value. Anyways. Just keep going. <laughs> anyways, everybody knows. But but if that's the sort of approach, then maybe they should approach their team building that way. Why don't you make contracts? Just put people on like a three-year contract, put your years in and and build the teams around key players. That way they would be more able to maybe go after specific targets, uh, build teams around certain key players. Somebody is, you know, one to three guys who are really going after this market segment. Maybe it requires a little bit of a bigger team. Instead of investing and saying like, hey, we're going to hire these guys, uh, these guys and girls, and and, um, and they're going to be a part of the team. And, and, you know, we have to go through this crazy process and it will grow our 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 billion dollar company from from 320 to 330 people instead of all that headache just do contracts just like in like in a in a ball team uh three years with extensions and so forth that way you're able to keep your your um your squad size at relatively small scale uh and then you're always able to keep to, to to the people that are super high performers, and and when some people are just getting tired of of constantly you know churning out ideas and and just that super high pace of work uh, or or just environment, you know you can always just fund them and have them set up new companies in in your portfolio uh, outside the supercell. So I don't know. I was just thinking out out loud uh, the sort of a notion of of teams and how that could be used in order to to keep uh, the company scale at what they wish for. And instead of always cutting from the, uh, the, the people who are coming in, just instead of um, create the sort of a, a tenure at Supercell, because that's, that's worth as well. I don't know, Eric, what do you think? Well, I mean, I think there's way too much smart analysis here. So, you know, I can't really compete in this space, but um, you know, people love them some Supercell, right? And they have, have created some of the most innovative games in the space with a very small team. So, I think if you look upon them with that lens, then they have really achieved quite a remarkable type of performance over the last 10 years. And I honestly hope they do continue to come up with these new games that kind of change the landscape to some degree on, on the space because I don't see a lot as much innovation out there anymore as we used to. So I think it comes down to what kind of company that they wanted to become, right? So they could have been this big massive behemoth in which they acquire all these companies and create billions of dollars in revenue and, and grow, 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 grow. And at the, probably at the expense of actually being creative to some degree. I mean, they should have been, if you were trying to be a growth engine, they should have acquired great, you know, small giant, they should acquire Playrex and peak, et cetera. And they could have been a much bigger company, but obviously a much big, a, a different company. So I think there's two things going on and we've kind of, talked about this before is that they just had this luxury of not being able not needing to perform right they don't need to grow year after year is that they've been left alone by their 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 great overlords at Tencent and and they've just kind of done what they want to do and and I think the other thing is that they got paid out twice right I think they got acquired twice by um, SoftBank and Tencent if I'm not mistaken so they all got paid, so they don't give a fuck, right? I mean, it's like, you know, they got fuck you money like 10 years ago, right? So it's like, they just want to run it the way they want to run it. And I don't know any of these guys. I'm just going from rumor and, and, and people that do know some of them is that wh- where's the incentive for them? No, I mean, their incentive is to be creative and make cool shit, right? And, and they don't want to manage 10 different studios and 10 different remote locations and deal with that management headache because that's like a pain in the ass, right? They... They want to count their money and, and, and make great games. And so that's what they've done. So I, I do 
from time to time have some critical things to say about Supercell, but I think they've stayed pure to their vision of what their company is and what they want to build. And I think that's remarkable in this day and age and good, good for them, but they are not creating a sustainable, uh, you know, a growth business the way, um, you know, typical investors would, would want and require. So it's not, I guess when I try to say that in the podcast in particular, I'm not trying to say that what they have not accomplished is not remarkable. What I'm trying to say is that that is not a sustainable model for the majority of the people in the world. <laughs> right. So, so if you want to build a company, you don't build a company that builds to delight their customers. You build a company to grow. Right. And that, that will, that will get you uh, compensation and paid. So anyway, that's kind of my whole take. I, 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 I do respect these guys. They're amazing. Uh, um, so we will see how, what they come up with next. All right, so let's move on to the last article of the day, uh, which is design plus behavioral economics equals Apple. So this is a post by Lloyd Melnick, a casino executive with an absolutely stunning blog, uh, LloydMelnick.com, I believe that's that's the other uh, name of the blog. It's it just, it looks horrible. The blog looks absolutely like it's made in 2008, but the content is AAA. Like, it's just fantastic. Anyway, shout out to Lloyd. Uh, so recently he read a great book on Johnny Ive uh, called Johnny Ive, the genius behind Apple's greatest products. Uh, so in this Lloyd books, I'm quoting, book showed that what many, including myself, considered good luck or timing by Apple were the result of a decision driven by Ive's design philosophy. The iPod was not simply an MP3 player at the right time. The iPhone was not just another mobile phone that hit a nerve with customers, and the iMac was not simply a pretty PC. These were very were all products driven by fundamental design philosophy backed by consumer behavior principles. So what Lloyd did is he extracted, um, well, in that book, there were six concepts, and, and he extracted them and kind of looked at them from the gaming perspective. So number one, so these are Johnny Ives. Um, concept. So number one is simple is better. So a product with less functionality is more likely to change fundamental behavior. As I've once said, we're not interested in design statements. We do everything we can to simplify design. And, you know, it kind of breaks the story about creation of the iPod and iTunes and how they strip features versus adding new to them. The second principle is play to people's habits. And here they talk about the importance of building something for how people behave, not just what they need. And they do an example of, this is a weird example in the book about a pen I've made with a part that people like to fiddle with. And that wasn't this sort of a traditional consumer behavior, but he kind of um, found the element that people like to do and they fell in out with this pen. I don't know, it just feels, felt kind of weird. Anyway, number three was be bold. And that the quote is, logic does not necessarily lead to great in many ways. It drives you to average. The same is true for design. Everyone is looking at making incremental improvements and your new quote, unquote, is, design is likely to look like 20 of your competitors. And the example here was the iPhone and that rather than improving on Nokia and Motorola, start from scratch, both in terms of hardware, in terms of software, and in terms of business for Apple as they entered basically a red ocean uh, in business. The number four is start with users. So this is behavioral economics and saying that people are not rational and they often don't know what they prefer. And for Ive, the first step in creating a product was developing a design story. He did not feel he was building a product, but instead he was building the user's perception and meaning of the product. Number five uh, principle was attention to detail. So while many designers would focus on the visuals, I worry just as much about 
the guts of his design. And here they kind of went into, the, into, into his approach of creating multiple prototypes with subtle changes that explored thoroughly all aspects before going to production. And the final concept in this book was need to encompass everything. And this is, of course, uh, you know, design encompassing everything, not simply the visual. And in Apple's case, it's the packaging that they uh, put on as much effort as in the actual products. Now, Lloyd really goes nicely through all these elements and there's there's a lot of depth to it. But where he kind of fell um, a little bit light was the end of it. And that is how you use this in games because he was a lot talking about like this is so much useful in games business as well. So since we were talking a lot about Supercell, I kind of thought about that Supercell is, is in many ways encompassing all these elements. So when we think about simple is better, I would say I would give an example of Boom Beach. Um, when that game originally came out, it was very much a stripped version of, of even Clash of Clans, uh, focused a lot on PvE, as you guys said. But what was really nice about it when it originally came, it, it, I don't know what the first time flow now is, it really encouraged players to tap and explore, something that the team who had previously worked on Heyday learned from it. So it was more intuitional versus putting people on rails and, and having them go through it. It was actually you're fiddling with the stuff and you're actually understanding that rock, well, rock probably creates stone and stone I need for this building and there are the palm trees and that's actually trees and I can eat the trees to build the building. So they were very, very intuitive and, and simple game in the beginning. Uh, the second part was playing to habits. And this is something that Boom Beach, in my opinion, did really well as well. So they introduced a quite simple version of the game. But as the time passed, they added a lot, a lot of elements like the strike forces and that kind of stuff. Uh, and when those elements were originally added, they didn't push them like bold beats like Zynga does. Like, hey, here's a new feature. Everybody plays it. Go for it and analyze. But they kind of put stuff into the game and they would analyze how the community how the most engaged players interact with these new features that are not fully done and then based on what they were seeing and how the players behaved they built features around that and and that is kind of you know instigating player to create a habit and then building on top of it so uh, this was an interesting approach um, the number three was being bold uh, talking about innovation versus iteration and as adam pointed out previously you know the um and, and you guys pointed out in Supercell's portfolio, pretty much all the incremental innovation, in, incrementally innovative games, apart from maybe Boom Beach, have been killed. And most of the time, when you pick a Supercell game, whether it's the one that that, that have been uh, killed in South Launch or whether the ones they survived, it, we always get that what the fuck moment, whether it's Brawl Stars, whether it's Clash Royale, whether it was original Clash of Clans, or whether it's even Heyday, it really feels very different. And, and that's a lot about being bold and, and doing something unique. Um, number four was start with the users. I didn't come up with any Supercell example here. I would use my own experience of making a city building game at a, at a big publisher. And, and we did a lot of user research at that point. And one thing that came out of that user research was that uh, farming players really, really, really wanted to play actually a city building game. And while we failed to execute on that city building game, at the same time, SimCity came out and, and Township was, was pushing more and more towards farming genre. It was really clear that that um, other companies have seen the same studies and they were basically pointing their games towards the users, what the users really wanted to do and actually finding through that and, and turning their products around uh, to cater those, those players, and especially SimCity, which was essentially heyday in city building. It was the same mechanics, same features and everything. And that, that game did really well. Uh, 
Um, number the, the final one, the attention to detail. Uh, this is a, again, I would, I would, any good studio does it, and Supercell is, is probably one of the best examples. Is that they truly play their games till exhaustion, um, like on and off. Of course, those games are PvP, so it's a little bit easier to play them. And through that, really, you can start seeing the details when you're deep inside your game, inside your own game. Whether you're Eric, who's playing constantly division, like you, you understand all those details only when you invest the time into it, and you understand how it becomes better. And final, encompass everything. I'll, I'll, you know, finalize this with another Supercell example. Is that in in the company, they the teams have a lot of ownership, not only inside the game but also outside the game. They're all. The CEO often refers to the game leads as mini CEOs. I mean, they're not even mini CEOs. They're pretty big, you know, pretty big games. So what that means is that they have a lot of ownership outside the game, even in marketing and then how everything is set up, their partnerships and so forth. So they're not bestowed upon these partnership deals that somebody else makes or these marketing campaigns that didn't improve that are taking the team to other way, but actually they control a lot of, of not only inside the game, but also outside of it. And that kind of speaks to that approach of encompassing everything. But as a final thing, I would have to say like all these things, even though they're great and you can find examples at Supercell, which is super phenomenal company or Apple that is, you know, the fifth or one of the five biggest companies in the world, they're still, you know, plus or minus. I can as easily find more examples where company wasn't bold and was very iterative and still was able to to reach the top. I can find, you know, companies that don't do user research that, that much that are really good. Uh, companies that don't pay attention to the details that are doing great, and companies where where there's teams that that you know they 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 might not look at every piece, and their ownership is distributed, and they're still doing great. So, I think this was interesting article to read, but it kind of I don't know it kind of creates this framework that is true to some companies and true in others. So it's you know that was that was my key takeaway. I wish Lloyd would have put in a little bit more example, especially from casino companies on how these uh, elements are, are um, taken into account, maybe in his next post JK or somebody else. Was I the only one who read this? No, I read it. I, I liked it. Uh, those are some books that I actually weren't aware of. So as always Lloyd delivers, mm-hmm. I, I probably just make one comment, which is that I personally feel like the be bold concept is very important, especially for product managers. I mean, I don't know how many times we're in a soft launch and, you know, you got to really improve the KPIs. It's like all these red versus blue experiments are not going to like, why are we fucking around with this little tiny shit? You know, it's like, and so I definitely think that's one specific concept that a lot more PMs need to embrace. But yeah, that's it. I think we're basically done unless there's anything else. All right. No. There we go, Twig81. And uh, yeah, guys, catch y'all later. Have a good week. Bye. Bye.